Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. On October 30th, 1996, Jennifer Jeffley signed a written statement typed by Wayman Allen that implicated her in the murder of Catalina Palomino. Detective Allen testified that this statement was Jennifer's fourth version of events and that he believed it to be the truth. In the statement, Jennifer claims to have been assisting two men in a robbery when Catalina was murdered. She named the two men, Ernest Watson and a guy named Tim, who she knows as Slow. Based on Allen's investigative reports, it appears that both Ernest and Tim are fictitious characters. They don't exist. And so it would seem that at least some of Jennifer's confession is false. At this point, we need to take a step back. We have to start analyzing all of these statements one by one, beginning with her first version of events. In order to identify elements of Jennifer's statement that are true, we need to know what the crime scene looked like. And the best way to do that is to break down the statements from the early witnesses who we know were not involved in the murder. This is Season 10, Episode 4, Nothing to Gain and Nothing to Lose. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. This case has so many layers that it's almost impossible to keep them all straight. We're going to have to pick it apart one piece at a time. Just this week, I received the district attorney's case file. It's nearly 600 pages long and contains statements from a dozen people who were near Catalina's apartment around the time the murder was being committed. Sorting all of them out is not going to be an easy task, but we will get through it. Today's episode is going to be kind of unique. 
After receiving the case file from the DA, I decided to call a last-minute audible, meaning that this was not the episode that I had planned for you this week. The result is me writing an episode in real time, meaning you're going to be piecing the elements of these stories together right along with me. As I sit here right now, writing the beginning of this script, I have no idea where it's going to end. Should be an interesting ride, so let's get started. Today we're going to focus on Jennifer's first statement, and how it compares to the statements of the apartment manager, Pam Wiley, and the maintenance man, Daniel Keith Truesdale, who goes by Keith. Truesdale was the first person who was not a suspect to enter the apartment. And a quick glance at what he had to say clued me into the fact that we cannot completely rely on the crime scene photos taken by Houston PD because Keith moved things before the police arrived. The reason that I want to start with Jennifer's first statement rather than her final statement is because it's the most consistent. She repeated it to police five times over two days and only changed the story after Detective Allen insisted that it wasn't true, and he told Jennifer that her friends, all of them, say that she's lying. But prior to Allen putting that pressure on Jennifer, she was actually very consistent with her oral statement to Officer Piekert, her oral statement to Detective Swainson, her written statement to Sergeant Smith, and two oral statements given to Detective Allen himself. She gave the same statement five times. These are the bullet points of that statement beginning with the events of the morning of the murder. At 8.20 a.m., Youngster woke Jennifer up because her pager was going off. She looked at the pager and recognized the number as family friend Craig Peters. She sets the pager down and she goes back to sleep. Then at 8.45 a.m., her pager goes off again and it's Craig again. This time Jennifer gets up, washes her face, brushes her teeth, and heads out to Janet Dorchie's apartment to use the phone to call Craig. As she walked down the stairs, she sees Catalina tending to her plants on her patio, and they exchange good mornings. At Janet's, Jennifer calls Craig. They talk for about five minutes, and he says that he has to get off the phone, but that he's going to call back. She then calls the phone company. While on the phone to the phone company, Craig clicks back in. She and Craig talk for, quote, a while about the problems that she's having with her mother, and then after the call, she heads back to Eva's apartment. Now, everything in the statement up to this point has been verified, both by Janet and by Craig. But this next segment of the statement is obviously in dispute. Next week, we're going to go over all of the witness statements that detail the different perspectives of these moments. But this is how Jennifer says that things happen next. She says that she walks back towards Eva's apartment, and when she arrives, she finds Eva on the bottom steps of her apartment talking to Catalina. Eva seemed scared and was asking Catalina if she was okay. Jennifer says that she heard the man's voice imitating a woman's voice calling out from inside. Then Jennifer tells Eva to go call the police, and Eva runs to the office. Now, like I said, that segment of the statement is absolutely disputed, and we're going to dig into it more next week. But it's this next segment that I'm really interested in and want to focus in on today. I want to know, when we compare her statements to the managers and the maintenance man, if Jennifer ever entered the crime scene, and if so, when. Jennifer says in this first statement that after Eva left for the office, Jennifer then went to Catalina's front door and began knocking. She says that the voice from inside was still talking to her through the door at this point. She continues knocking and yells that the police are on their way. 
At that point, the voice stopped answering her. As a point of reference, from her position at the door, Jennifer had no view of the front of Catalina's apartment. There was a wall between her and the patio. And also of note, Youngster and KD are nowhere around. So it's just her, under the stairway, knocking on Catalina's door with no view of the patio. Jennifer goes on to say that as she's knocking on the door, a guy she knows as Red Rock approached with another man. They came from the direction of the office, which is the opposite direction of Catalina's patio. Red Rock asks, quote, where's the Mexican that stays upstairs? Jennifer tells him Eva's asleep and to just go. He asked what was going on, and Jennifer told him to just go. Then Red Rock and his friend leave. Next, Eva arrives back on the scene, followed by a blonde apartment manager and a maintenance man. Jennifer says that she could hear a phone ringing from inside Catalina's apartment. The maintenance man jumped over the patio fence and entered the apartment, and the next, a red-haired manager arrives at the scene. At that time, Jennifer, quote, lifted herself up on the patio fence, and she could see Catalina lying on the floor. It stated at trial that this would be impossible, that there's no line of sight from outside the patio to Catalina's body, but that's simply not true. From that angle, there is a clear line of sight to at least the lower half of her body. So Jennifer goes on to say that one of the managers yelled, see if she's alive. Jennifer says that after she heard the manager say to see if Catalina's alive, that she herself hopped the fence onto the patio and entered the apartment behind maintenance man Keith Truesdale. She says that she went straight to the body, and this is how she described what she saw. From her statement, quote, I could see there was a broken orange-red-looking flower pot. There was dirt in front of the lady. I saw a piece of the broken pot laying on her shoulder near her neck. I think she was on her side. I moved the piece of broken pot away from her neck so I could check her pulse. There was blood everywhere. I couldn't feel a pulse. I started to get real nervous because there was too much blood for me. I got up and left. I went back over the patio fence. While I was in there, I don't know for sure where the maintenance man was. I know he was looking for the phone. End quote. She goes on to say that after she exited the apartment, Youngster was outside. He told her that an ambulance was on the way. In her statement here, she says that Eva told Youngster to go back into the apartment because people had complained about her having too much traffic in and out of her unit. Jen then goes around to the front door, and at that point, both managers had entered the apartment. Eva was standing at the door as well. Jennifer says that she walked in the front door at this point and that she told the adults inside that they need to cover Catalina's body up. She says that she then sees a purse on the floor next to Catalina's leg. She noticed it when someone kicked it. She picks up the purse and puts it in a chair by the dining table. At that point, she leaves the apartment. Jennifer goes on to say that one of the managers went to get a nurse who performed CPR on Catalina. However, she says in her statement that she didn't actually see the nurse doing CPR or the manager cover up the body with a blanket. She overheard them telling police about it. So this is what I want to know at this point. There's not a lot that we can get from Pam Wiley or Keith Truesdale as far as the truthfulness of Jennifer's statement, other than the fact that we need to know, did she follow Truesdale over the patio fence as she said she did? Or... Did she jump the fence before Eva returned with the maintenance man and managers, as Eva says in her first statement, or did she just walk right in the front door behind the managers? When I looked at the crime scene photos, I initially thought that this entire story was false. Jennifer's description of the scene doesn't match the photos. 
Catalina's on her back, not her side, and the orange planter is knocked over in the living room, not next to Catalina's body. In order to clarify the order of events that morning, we need to hear what Keith Truesdale had to say. Detective Swainson interviewed him at the scene. From his report, quote, Keith Truesdale indicated that he saw assistant manager Livonia heading towards the office. She appeared to be quite concerned about something. He learned from her that there was an emergency situation at apartment 57. He proceeded to the apartment and eventually entered the apartment and found the complainant. A written statement was obtained from this witness. Keith not only entered the apartment, but moved some of the furnishings, namely a flower pot and stand, to open the door. Furthermore, he indicated that to open the front door, it was necessary to unlock the deadbolt lock and remove the security chain. This indicated that the suspect or suspects entered through the patio door and exited from the same. The witness handled some of the items and was able to articulate some of the actions by the other witnesses. Therefore, this witness was transported to the homicide division immediately to provide a witness statement. The following is the text of his written statement. End quote. I'm going to read to you Truesdale's written statement right after the break. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the written statement provided to police by Keith Truesdale on the day of the murder at 1230 p.m. Quote. My name is Daniel Keith Truesdale Jr. I am a white male and I am 20 years old. My home address is 10601 Sabo, number 47. I have attained 12 years of formal education. I am employed by Graystar. My work address is 10601 Sabo and my work telephone number is 944-2051. I am in the Houston Police Department Homicide Division giving a written statement about an elderly lady who was found stabbed to death inside apartment number 57. Note, I was directed by my manager, Pam Wiley, to go inside apartment number 57 and check on the condition of a tenant. I am an employee, maintenance man, at the Green Arbor Apartments located at 10601 Sabo. I think it was around 9.45 a.m. when we, Luis Perez and I, had just finished checking all the fire extinguishers around the complex, making sure they were full. We were walking back to the office when we noticed that Pam Wiley, manager, Janine Smith, assistant manager, and Lavana, temporary leasing agent, were all standing outside near building number four. At this time, Lavana, the leasing agent, started walking back toward the office. I then asked her, quote, what's going on? And she said, quote, we think there's a lady dead inside an apartment. I then went to the location where my manager was at. 
At this time, I saw two young black ladies standing outside with my manager, along with an unknown black male. I recognize one of the black ladies to live in apartment number 58, and her name is Eva. Eva lives in the unit directly above where the elderly lady was found stabbed to death. Both of the black ladies appeared to be frantic. Eva kept saying, oh my god, you got to help her. Eva repeated the same thing over and over. You got to help her. I was told that Eva was the person who ran to the office and told them to call the police because she heard the lady screaming and that it sounded like she was thrown up against the wall. Later on, I heard Eva tell everyone that after she heard the noises, screams like someone was being thrown up against the wall, she hollered out asking if everything was all right. At which time, Eva said that she heard a voice say everything was all right and that they had just fell and hit her head. My manager, Pam Wiley, then checked the front door and found that the keyless deadbolt was locked from the inside. I could hear Eva yell out again, someone has got to help her. The manager then told me to jump the fence. I then jumped the fence, a four-foot wooden fence with no exit gate, and gained entry into the patio area. At this time, I could see that the patio screen door had been tampered with because the screen had been pulled off and was lying on the ground. I then saw one pink slipper lying upside down next to the threshold. I then noticed that the sliding glass door was open. Before I went inside the apartment, I yelled out, Is anyone home? But I didn't get a response. I then walked into the apartment in the living room area. Immediately, I started scanning the apartment from left to right. When I looked to my right, I saw a pair of legs that appeared to be slightly bent at the knees. Note, from where I was standing, my view was blocked by a speaker. At this point, I turned around and notified my manager, Pam, that the lady was next to the front door. Pam then told me to open the front door. Note, before I could open the front door, I had to move a plant stand, which was blocking the doorway. It appeared to me that someone could have possibly hit the lady with this object because it was made of steel and all the dirt was on the floor next to her body. There was also something white, like a ceramic vase, lying on the floor next to her head. After I opened the door, Pam came inside and checked her pulse. I think Pam said that she had a pulse. During this time, the two black females walked inside the apartment. Pam then told them to leave. Pam then went into the bedroom and grabbed a comforter off the bed and placed the comforter over the female. Pam then said, call 911. We both started looking for a telephone, but at first we couldn't find the telephone. Pam then left the apartment and told me that she was going to the office to call 911. After Pam left, I continued to look for the phone. I finally located the telephone in the kitchen. It was underneath a piece of paper. I then dialed 911 and notified the dispatcher that we had an elderly female inside the apartment unconscious. After I hung up the telephone, I noticed that one of the kitchen drawers were open. This drawer had an assortment of knives inside. At this time, I didn't touch anything and walked back to the front door. When I got back to the front door, my assistant manager, Janine Smith, told me to let this lady in because she's a nurse. The nurse then straightened out the elderly lady's body and started administering CPR. At this time, I could hear the ambulance coming. When the nurse moved the lady's feet, I could see blood on her blouse and where her head was laying on the floor. Once the paramedics arrived and started attending to the elderly lady, I told them that I thought she'd fell and hit her head, but when they opened up her blouse, they found out that she had been stabbed also. I then saw that the elderly lady had three puncture wounds to her chest. The paramedics then told us that we needed to call the police since this looked like a murder. I then dialed 911 again and let the paramedic talk to the dispatcher. At this point, we all exited the apartment. Now let's break down the parts of this statement that are relevant to Jennifer's. First, the obvious. 
He doesn't say anything about Jennifer entering the apartment behind him through the patio. He doesn't say that she didn't. He just doesn't mention it. Although his narrative certainly doesn't leave any room for Jennifer to have went in behind him and went straight to Catalina's body. Key says that he jumped the fence, entered the apartment, immediately saw Catalina's body, then moved the planter and plant stand to open the door for the manager, Pam Wiley. He does say at one point that he was looking for a phone, which he found in the kitchen, but based on his memory, that happened after he opened the door for Pam. If you're having a hard time picturing all this, I would highly recommend you go to our website and look at the photos for this episode. I've also published the crime scene video to our YouTube channel. So whose memory is correct here? Or who's telling the truth? I can't believe that Truesdale is intentionally lying. He just has no reason to. Nothing to gain and nothing to lose. So I'm operating under the assumption that he's retelling the events of the morning to the best of his recollection. My knee-jerk reaction here would be to assume that Jennifer is lying and that she never jumped the fence and entered the apartment via the patio. Truesdale has no reason to lie, and his statement simply makes it nearly impossible for that to have happened. But there is something that we need to consider. This is the first statement that Jennifer gave to police, way before she was a suspect, back when she truly was just a witness. At this point, she knows that Eva, Pam Wiley, another manager, and another maintenance man are all outside when she claims to have jumped the fence. And she also knows that Truesdale was inside of the small apartment when she says this happened. So if she's lying, why would she construct a pointless narrative that seemingly everyone could prove is false? If she didn't follow Truesdale in, then what's the utility in this lie? The only thing that I could think of is just a young, immature person trying to sound cool or sound like she was involved or did something to help when she really didn't. Or you might say that she needed to put herself inside the apartment in case forensic evidence came back to her. Now, that's assuming that at 15 years old, she would have that kind of foresight of thought within minutes of the murder. But besides that, it's still not necessary. We know that she was in the apartment. She walked right in the front door. Literally everyone on the scene confirms that Jen walked in. So I'm having a hard time understanding why she would make up a story about jumping through the patio and back out. At this point, there may be some evidence that Jennifer actually was in the apartment before the front door was open. Jennifer says in her statement that there was an orange pot by the body. At least that's the way I read it. Unfortunately, she's not super clear about where the orange pot was. But when I read her statement, to me it seemed like she was saying the orange pot was next to the body. And like I said earlier, I assumed she was just wrong about this because the pot wasn't by the body. It was in the living room. But now we know that Truesdale moved the pot. When he entered the apartment, the orange pot and its stand were next to Catalina's body, between her body and the door. He had to move it to the living room in order to be able to open the door. Which means, if Jennifer saw the pot next to the body, then it's likely she was inside the apartment, before the front door was unlocked and open. I really just wish that she had been more clear about the pot's location in her first statement, so we could know for sure. If she was inside before the door was opened, then that could mean one of three things. Either Jennifer's telling the truth in her first statement, or she was telling the truth in her second version of events where she says she actually jumped into the apartment before the maintenance man got there, or she was inside when the murder occurred. And at this point, I'm not prepared to say which one of those scenarios is accurate, 
But I can say that the version of events that she described in her final confession do not fit with the forensic or medical evidence. So either things went down the way she described them in these first five statements or in some other way that we haven't heard yet. And I'm still trying to figure out some sort of utility in adding the story of following the maintenance man inside into a false narrative. There's just no reason to add that detail. She was inside after the door was open and everyone knows that she was inside. So it's looking like Jennifer might have been in the apartment before the front door opened. But if so, when? Is it possible that she could be telling the truth here and Truesdale just didn't see her? The best answer I can give you here is yes, it's possible, but not probable. We all know that eyewitness statements are some of the least reliable evidence in criminal investigations, especially when things are happening fast and there's trauma involved. So could Keith Truesdale be a little mixed up on his details? Well, sure he could. But what would that look like? Well, let's first think back to what Jennifer said in her statement. She said that as the manager and Truesdale were arriving, she heard a phone ringing inside of Eva's apartment. No one else mentions the ringing phone, but as far as I can see, no one was ever asked about it. This is another one of those little details that just don't have utility as a lie. I just can't see a reason for Jennifer to make up the detail of the phone ringing. So let's just assume for the moment that the phone was ringing when Keith went inside. Jennifer says that she propped herself up and looked inside for a moment. After Keith went inside, but before she jumped the fence. What if Truesdale is just off a little bit on the sequence of events? What if he went in, saw the body, and then looked for a phone to either answer it, if it was ringing, or to dial 911? If he looked for the phone before he opened the door, then I think Jennifer's statement could be true. You have to understand the layout of the apartment. While it is small, there's a few places where someone could be and not be able to see someone in the living room. One, of course, is in the bedroom, and surprisingly, the other is in the kitchen just 10 or so feet away from Catalina's body, which is where Truesdale ultimately found the phone. Even though the kitchen is an open concept, the view from there to the front door and living room is very limited. If you're standing in the kitchen, looking in the direction of the living room, the entire left half of the kitchen has a wall from floor to ceiling, contains shelves, and on the other side, there's a coat closet. The rest of the view into the living room is obstructed by cabinets. You have a stove and lower cupboards and a countertop, and then about 18 inches of open space, and then the upper cabinets that go all the way to the ceiling. Meaning that if someone was standing in the kitchen, and another person walked into the apartment from the patio to the front door and back out again, the person in the kitchen wouldn't see them. So it is possible that Jennifer is telling the truth if Keith was looking for the phone in the kitchen or bedroom while she was in the apartment. And I do think it's possible that Keith has some of his details confused. There is at least one detail in the statement that seems to be false. He says that after he walked inside, his view of Catalina's body was blocked by a speaker, which doesn't seem to be true. Nowhere from any angle could any one of the speakers in that apartment block the view of Catalina's body. But there are a few large floor speakers present. There's one just inside the sliding glass door. As you walk in from the patio, it would be on your right but out of the sight line of the door. There's another speaker just past the entertainment center on the same wall, but again, it's tucked back in against the wall and behind a coffee table. In no way could that block the view to the body. There's also a large speaker in the bedroom, but again, not obstructing a line of sight. 
Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that Keith is lying, just that he's mistaken. Maybe it was something else that was blocking his view. Maybe it was the coffee table, or maybe he's just remembering the speaker and piecing it together in a memory. But it is worth pointing out that at least we know that his statement isn't 100% accurate. He does seem to have confused at least this one detail. And if he can be confused about a speaker blocking his view, maybe he could also be confused about the exact order of events. But for further clarification, we really need to hear what Pam Wiley has to say, since it was her on the other side of the door. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. On the morning of the murder, Detective Swainson conducted an oral interview with the apartment manager, Pam Wiley. The first paragraph of his notes on the interview contained a massive red flag. This is his report. Quote, Pam Wiley indicated that she was in the office when Eva from apartment number 58 came into the office. The young black female was screaming, quote, call the police, the little old lady is dead. Wiley described her as extremely excited, talking fast with her hands moving. Wiley directed another resident manager to call 911 while she prepared herself to leave the office and investigate the incident. Wiley indicated that she has had complaints from the nearby residents, including the dead complainant, that an inordinate amount of pedestrian traffic has been going to the upstairs unit number 58. Furthermore, she has warned the resident, Eva, that this is being noted and should stop. The manager, Pam Wiley, and two other managers left the office and proceeded to the outside of apartment 57. There they noted the apparent screen door damage to the patio door and became extremely concerned of what might have happened. One of Wiley's assistant managers, Livonia, headed back to the office to call for assistance. While heading back to the office, she ran into her maintenance men, Luis Perez and Keith Truesdale. The two men proceeded to the apartment, and when no response was obtained at the front door or the patio door, Truesdale scaled the bushes and the patio fence to enter the complainant's apartment. Truesdale found the complainant on the floor near the front door. Did you catch that? Pam said here in this first oral interview that Eva came running into the office screaming, the little old lady is dead. If this is true, then Eva has a pretty big problem here. According to her, she was speaking to the voice from inside the apartment when she left to go to the office. She did not know that Catalina was dead at that point, or at least she shouldn't have known if her story is true. And we also learned from the first few lines of this report that it was, in fact, Catalina who had complained to the management about all the traffic in and out of Eva's apartment. And lastly, according to this interview, Pam had already directed two people to call 911 
before Truesdale ever got to the scene. Unfortunately, in this statement, we don't get any details about what happened when Truesdale went inside, only that he found Catalina's body. The next day, Detective Allen stopped by the office to speak with Pam again. At this point, Jennifer's first statement had already been signed, and Allen himself spoke with Jennifer the night before. While this isn't a signed statement or a transcript, you can tell from the context that in this interview, Allen is asking specifically about elements of Jennifer's statement. And there is a definite and obvious shift in Pam's tone about the incident. In her first unprompted interview, she says that Eva told her Catalina was dead at the moment she came into the office, then she goes on to make sure to point out the beef between Eva and Catalina regarding the traffic in and out of her apartment. None of that's mentioned here. From the report, quote, Allen spoke briefly with Pam Wiley. She related the events in which Eva came into the office and going over to the complainant's apartment. Miss Wiley stated that the maintenance man entered the apartment at her request and found Miss Palomino's body on the floor behind the front door. Miss Wiley stated that she was let in through the front door and she checked Miss Palomino for a pulse. Allen asked Miss Wiley if she had witnessed anyone else climb over the patio fence and enter the apartment with the maintenance man. Miss Wiley stated she was positive that no one else had gone in with him. Miss Wiley stated that one or two of the girls standing there walked in and she told them to get out of the apartment. Miss Wiley stated she covered Miss Palomino with a comforter from the bedroom. Miss Wiley stated she does recall hearing someone say to cover her up. Miss Wiley stated that another resident, Miss Gibson, had attempted to provide medical assistance to Miss Palomino and she was allowed to come inside before the ambulance arrived. Allen asked Miss Wiley if she recalls seeing a purse on the floor next to the body of Miss Palomino when she was in the apartment. Miss Wiley stated she does not recall ever seeing a purse on the floor. Detective Allen clearly isn't concerned about Eva at this point. He's only interested in verifying the details of Jennifer's statement. And according to Wiley, Jennifer did not follow Keith over the fence. She says she's certain of that, but she also says that she was let in the front door, which would mean that at some point while Truesdale was inside, she moved to a position where she could not see the patio. Jennifer does score one point here, since Pam does say that she did hear someone tell her to cover the body. That part fits Jennifer's statement, along with the fact that Jennifer was inside after the door was open. The purse that Jennifer mentioned is still a mystery. There is a black purse on the dining table in the crime scene photos. Jennifer says that she found it lying on the floor near the body and placed it in a chair by the table, and Pam says that she doesn't recall seeing it on the floor. And so far we don't have any statements about how it got from the chair onto the table, or if it was always on the table. As far as the sequence of events, we just don't get any detail here. Keith went in, he opened the door, and that's all we get. The details don't come for another week, when Pam gave her written statement. For context's sake, I'll point out here that the statement you're about to hear wasn't taken until a week after the murder, after Jennifer Jeffley had already been charged and arrested. The case was marked by Houston PD as cleared on October 31st. This statement was taken on November 5th, and it was typed up by Detective Allen the same detective that typed up Jennifer's confession. This is Pam Wiley's written statement. Quote, I have attained 12 years of formal education. I am employed by Green Arbor Apartments. I am giving a statement to the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division concerning a homicide that was discovered at the complex Tuesday morning, October 29, 1996. 
I was at the office that morning when a resident came running into the office. The resident is Eva Mondragon. At the time, Lavana Pena was also in the office. Eva was yelling hysterically, something's wrong, I heard the lady screaming, come on. I followed Eva out of the office and we ran in the direction of her apartment. I believe Eva said the screaming was in the apartment underneath her. Lavana followed behind. I recall this other young black female being outside of the woman's apartment. I can't recall with any certainty if she was standing there when we first got there or showed up shortly afterward. I learned later that the young girl I'm referring to is named Jennifer. Eva told me she thought the woman had fallen. I knocked on the front door. No one answered. I did not hear any sounds coming from inside. I tried to open the door. I could tell the keyless deadbolt was locked. Keith Truesdale and Luis Perez showed up. They are the maintenance men on the property. I noticed that the glass sliding door at the patio was standing open. I told Keith to jump the fence, and he did. Keith went inside, and I heard him holler out that he had found the woman, and she's lying at the front door. I was standing on the sidewalk outside the patio fence of apartment number 57 when Keith went over the fence into the apartment. No one else went over the fence or into the apartment until Keith opened the front door. Keith unlocked the front door, and I went inside. I saw a woman lying on the floor just inside the doorway. She was lying on her left side, and her face was rolled over in the direction of the floor. I saw blood on the woman's face, and I recall there was a plant on the floor between her arms. I moved the plant, and I checked her pulse at her neck and wrist. I really was unable to tell if it was me or her because I was shaking so bad. I thought I felt a pulse, and I told Keith we need a phone. I had already told someone to call 911. We were looking for a phone. I walked into the direction of the kitchen, away from her body, and when I looked around, I recall the girl named Jennifer had came through the doorway and walked past the woman's body and walked into the living room area and appeared to be looking around. I was standing in the dining room area when I said she needs to leave. She left out of the apartment. I got a comforter off the bed in the bedroom and covered the woman up. I could not find a phone anywhere. I ran back to the office to make sure 911 had been called. On the way back to the office, I saw a woman wearing white and she was a nurse. This woman's name is Doris Gibson. Miss Gibson went to the apartment and I was told she tried to do CPR on the woman. I determined 911 had been called. I returned to the apartment. Lavana was pulling the woman's application to contact any family members listed for emergency contact. Ms. Gibson told me it did not look like the woman was going to make it. Keith told me he found a telephone and he called 911. I waited in the parking lot for an ambulance. The ambulance arrived and I learned that the woman was dead. Another staff member, Janine Smith, had come over by this time and I heard her or Keith remark that the paramedics had found stab wounds on the woman and the police needed to be notified. The police department came out at that point, and I spoke with the officers and investigators concerning the events that had occurred this morning to my knowledge. The woman that died is Catalina Palomino. She has been a resident in the complex approximately six months. I provided a copy of her lease to investigators. She lived alone. Neither Pam Wiley or Keith Truesdale have any reason to lie. They have nothing to gain and nothing to lose by just simply telling the truth. And because of that, I believe them. For the most part, both of their stories line up. Keith jumped the fence, he found Catalina's body, he moved the flower pot and stand out of the way, and he opened the door. After this, he and Pam started searching the apartment for a phone, and this is when they both say they saw Jennifer enter the apartment. As much as I tend to question anything that has been touched at all by Detective Allen, 
I'm just not prepared to attempt the mental gymnastics necessary to explain away both of their statements as false. While I do have to say that it is still possible that Jennifer followed Keith in through the patio, I think the odds of that being true are extremely slim. You went through this journey today right along with me. I didn't have any preconceived notions about where this episode would end up when I began writing it. I wrote it in real time as I was moving through all the police reports and statements. I had hoped that by this point, I would have a clearer answer for you. But unfortunately, that's not the case. The only evidence that Jennifer had any knowledge of the crime scene that she couldn't have obtained simply by walking in behind Pam Wiley is the location of the orange pot. And unfortunately, her statement just isn't clear enough regarding the location to confirm whether she saw it before or after Truesdale moved it. And so, we keep moving forward in our mission to separate fact from fiction. It would appear that Jennifer's statement about what she did from the time she woke up until she left Janet Dorsey's apartment is true and verified. And now, after our best effort, I think that we have to conclude that her statement about what she did after Eva and the apartment employees arrived is not true. And to her credit, she has stated on the record that that part is not true. She said that she told that story because Eva told her to tell that story. But really, it's that time in the middle that really matters. Where was she and what was she doing after she left Janet's apartment before Eva and the managers arrived? It's a big question, and we have at least 10 witnesses who can help us answer it. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.